welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to First Time Podcast, welcome and let me explain. It's really, really simple. Either me, my guest, or both of us have experienced something for the first time and we are going to talk about it. Most of the time, it is a movie and today is no different, but this is a first time watch for me and this one might surprise the listeners because uh, this is one that I feel like everyone besides me uh, beside me has seen at one point, and it's one that my guest has sort of been, when he found out I hadn't seen it, um, he was trying to get me to watch it, and I thought, well, if if I'm going to watch it, I'm going to talk about it, because uh, everything's content now, but um, my guest is a returning guest, an old friend of mine, a fellow movie fan, a fellow uh, movie nerd, I guess you would say, um, Blake Housworth, welcome back. Hello. How's it going? Dandy. I feel relaxed and nice and warm in this room. <laughs> yeah, so to give some context, we literally, it's one of those rare episodes. I think I've done only one or two like this. I can think of um, Home Sweet Home Alone episode and Rare Exports, but Rare Exports wasn't the first watch for me. So this is, we're recording this at like 1030 at night, and we just finished watching our movie. And um at Blake's house and Blake has a immaculate theater home theater set up with a big screen and projector and a 4k player and really nice sound fancy yeah very fancy um and that's the way to watch it so especially first time so um I guess we can just sort of stop dancing around what the subject is and we're talking about David Fincher's seven do you like what you do for a living these things you see. You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I've worked homicide five years. Not here. Now, is he to me? Have ourselves a homicide. They're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. You're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. He, he had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Ah! Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. Ever seen anything like this? No. Seven. 
All right, seven. This actually came out in 1995, was written by Andrew Kevin Walker, directed by David Fincher. We have the uh, cinematography by Darius Kanji. Kanji? Um, Howard Shore did the music. Uh, we have a pretty small cast of main players. We have Morgan Freeman as Somerset. We have uh, Brad Pitt as Mills. And then basically Gwyneth Paltrow as Tracy and Arlie Ermey as pol- the police captain. Outside of that, it's a bunch of sort of minor roles. So those are that's, that's basically our main cast. I w- well, one other big one that, uh, funny enough, because this is my first viewing, I... Pulled up to IMDb, but it was like, don't read anything, don't read anything. And if you haven't seen this, don't listen to this. I, I shouldn't have to tell you that we're going to spoil things, but we're going to spoil things. So um, there is someone else that is in the movie that I pulled up and I was like, oh, I didn't know he was in this. And then luckily I'm an idiot and very forgetful because uh, that should have that could have been a major spoiler because he's not in the movie till like the very end. But um, I had literally, before I came over to your house, saw that Kevin Spacey was in this movie yeah. on IMDb and then did not think about it one at all. Well, and, and that's the thing. The voices, you know, when you think about hearing it now over the phone when he gets that call in his house or the apartment, you know, you're like, that's obviously Kevin Spacey. But, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that, and like Tad said, God, please don't ruin this movie for yourself. I've always had a special place in my heart for this film and just how well it was executed in the cinematography and just the feel of how grimy that city is. Um, but don't let, uh, you know, anything spoil this for you. So please, like, just just watch the movie and then you can listen and enjoy and, you know, go with that route. It, it'll just be a better experience. Well, sort of just crazy because, like, I mean, I talk about this on almost every episode of, like, I'm trying to reverse the stigma of when when someone asks you, "Have you seen this movie?" and people say, and I've I've been guilty of it before, and I'm trying to be better about it. But like, if I were to ask you, "Have you seen The Godfather?" and you say, "No," nope. I, I, you know what I should say? That's awesome. We should watch it sometime. Instead of saying, "Oh my God, you haven't seen it? I thought you were a film fan." And like I said, I've been guilty of that, and now I'm trying to like stop doing that. So. I appreciated when you were like, you haven't seen seven. Cool. You should come over and watch it instead of like, you're, Oh, you you know what I mean? Like I just get that reaction from so many people and I'm trying to like be better at it myself and also sort of spread that, like be happy when you find someone who hasn't seen something because you get to show it to them for the first time. That is a huge thing. And that's, that just shows how much you enjoy cinema in general, when you can get the excitement from somebody else's point of view of watching something and gathering what they thought of the film that you really enjoyed, or if you hated it, how much you hated it too. Like, or right. you, you know, you liked it. It doesn't matter, but it's to gauge that conversation with somebody and seeing that person actually getting to a clean slate. I mean, this film came out, you know, it's been a long time. I mean, it, this film is so old to the point where it's not like it's old, but it's, I think back of the first DVD I owned of it and I had to flip the disc over to finish the rest of the movie because it was too long mm-hmm. for an actual full disc. And that's just crazy to think about how you've been able to escape the idea of any, you know, details to the point where it could have ruined this film for you from, you know, back in the 90s all the way now. Well, so it's crazy. I was watching it and I was thinking the whole time I'm uh, like going into it, obviously I I know people have used um 
what's in the box as a it's sort of like a catchphrase almost yeah. people that that's the line that people remember from that movie but I did not know what it was referencing. Um, I've, I knew the movie was about the seven deadly sins. I mean, it's right in the title. I've never seen a trailer. Um, I've seen, you know, obviously pictures and stuff. I mean, Brad Pitt with his, you know, sort of short hair and the goatee thing going there. Um, I had no idea Gwyneth Paltrow was in this uh, going into it. Like, I, I literally knew next to nothing about it, which is just like... And somehow, you know, I was watching it and thinking... Oh, this is probably early two thousands, um, and then right now, like I didn't get to do any research because I w- did not want to spoil anything for me. So I have my my laptop right in front of me, and I saw that was ninety five. I'm like, holy shit! I was ten years old when this came out. They did a beautiful job cleaning the film up because on it it was on VHS and the DVD was it was rough around the edges for the color timing and just the atmospheric thing they did with it. And David Fincher and whoever was doing the cinematography and editing came back. And for the Blu-ray release, even though it wasn't something that was a huge special edition, they at least cleaned it up and it looks good. It holds up very well. Like it, I mean, I was, I watched it even tonight because it was the first time I watched it on the projector. And I was like, you know, this could almost pass as a 4k film. Like if it was just a little bit more detailed, like it looks really well done like well it's like 95 i mean the 90s were rough for like in my mind at least i think of the 90s i think of like we had a few great films i mean of course i'm a horror guy so i think like you know scream was about the only thing and and maybe some sequels and stuff but 90s were probably like the worst decade for horror um you know Wes craven sort of came back and saved it in the middle like 96 but um it's like, I, I would never have expected this to be 96. It's that old. And somehow I've made it all this time without spoiling the ending, without really, you know, I mean, it is a huge downer of a twist ending. Um, rivals the mist as far as like the worst, most depressing endings of all time. Yeah. I mean, there's no happy ending at all. No. There's no, I mean, it's just, holy fuck. And again, if you've somehow made it this far and you're, um, You've never seen Seven, which I'm guessing 99% of my listeners are like, how did Tad never see Seven? But you had to remember I was 10. Did you see it in the theaters? I, I really don't remember. And I don't know if I would have, though, because if you were, what, you were 10? Yeah. So I would have only been like, what, 13? Yeah, early teens. Yeah. So, so no, probably not. No. I, I think I discovered it uh, probably just buying the DVD because I thought the cover looked really cool. Um, and it was just like, oh yeah, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, they're pretty popular. And, you know, being a horror fan, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like it's some sort of seven deadly things. And I don't know what, but the thing is, and, and going into the movie too, it's just like, you don't actually see anybody get killed. Like you don't see the actual act of happening. It's the aftermath that you witness this. So you are very much along for the ride and the journey. And you're with these detectives as a detective watching this, you know, as you're a trying viewer. to figure it out. Yeah. And you're trying to solve this, this crime and crimes that have been happening. And I just thought that with the twist ending stood out and has stuck with me all these years. So I, when I hear someone that hasn't seen, it, I'm like, Oh my God, let's fucking find a TV somewhere and watch this because I just don't see how, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that may have never heard of it because it kind of came out and then it just disappeared. And the, the the box reference gets brought up here or there, but you know, most people don't sit there and be like, you critically acclaimed movie seven, you know, with you know, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt with a goatee. And it's, I think it has a reputation for being like very grisly, especially yeah. for its time. You know, um, this was, it's funny watching it now for the first time, um, 
I think if I would have seen it when it when you did or like, you know, shortly after it came out or when I just when I sort of got into movies, um, I probably would have noticed this before, but like, holy shit, Saw owes everything to this movie. The whole Saw franchise. Like clearly Lee Wanell, like they watched this and were like very inspired. Not saying they ripped it off by any means, but like I could not stop thinking about like the the similarities, but I feel like no offense to them, this just does it so much better. But it's funny because like it's, it's it feels like Saw was like seven for a new generation, and they just made a franchise out of it. Where this is a standalone movie, and I don't remember when Nick Nicholas Cage's movie Nine Millimeter is that what that it was that that movie? There was another one where he was uh, it was a like a smut thing where he watched smut tapes. Okay, and it came out around the same time. I I remember. And I thought, God, what is this film? Like it was, that was a rough film to, to visually sit through. So it, it was that error of just some, some, a couple movies that came out in the nineties that were just cringy to like, not bad cringy, but it was rough to like, you're like, God, I don't want to live in this city. Like if this is what this is going to be like, cause that's the, the atmospheric feel of this you know movie. It's, it is rough. And you know, you're like Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character. No wonder why he wants to quit. And, you know, retire and move away from this because it's just, you know, life itself can be a little exhausting to go through, I suppose. But um, I can't, I, I watch this film and I'm like, man, everything has a, has a purpose in it. There's nothing that's just sitting there that I'm like, oh, they don't really need this or need that. I'm like, it was really well put together when I think of how the film, you know, laid itself out. Well, guess what, Blake? I'm about to blow your mind. Yes. The movie 8mm starring Nick Cage. 8mm. My bad. Was written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who also wrote Seven. So there we go. Yeah, it okay. came out in 99, so four years later. He also wrote, I mean, Seven he wrote before that, but you know what else he wrote? Hmm. Sleepy Hollow. We were just talking about Tim Burton and how he doesn't write his own movies. Oh, no shit. This is wild, uh, right? Like, we're going down a weird rabbit weird. hole. Uh, he wrote The Wolfman, the remake. Yeah, with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, and then he did an episode of Tales from the Crypt uh, and, and Brain Scan, the um, Eddie Furlong movie. And Oh, wow. I don't know how you go from like Brain Scan, which if, if Insane Mike and uh, is listening, he's going, I love that movie. It's not <laughs> so great. It's, it's bad. But, um, you know, it's it's sort of cool. Like he has that on his resume to say, like, I wrote Seven because Seven's pretty damn good. Um but like with uh, David Fincher, like his background before this, I mean, Alien 3 was the only other feature I believe he did before this. Yeah. And then it was a ton of music videos. So he did stuff for like the biggest names. I mean, he's looking on here. He did, um, let's see, he did Madonna, Roy Orbison, uh, lots of Madonna, Aerosmith, um, Iggy Pop, Billy Idol, all these, you know, fantastic, huge artists from the 80s through the 90s then he did alien 3 which at the time he wasn't david you know people didn't know david fincher's name it was just you know a, a gig i'm sure and i think that one's sort of um unfairly judged i think it's better than people give it credit for following alien and aliens is probably the hardest fucking gig for a first time feature director and especially these earlier movies definitely have that music video aesthetic like this has that visual aesthetic of a yeah. music video where, oh, yeah. you know, quick cuts and um, it feels like a Nine Inch Nails video, especially, I mean, the opening, I'm watching it, I'm going, this looks like, I've actually said to you, it looks like the opening to American Horror Story. Yeah. But then I'm like, this sort of seems like a, a 90s, uh, you know, uh, music video for Nine Inch Nails and it turns out they're using Nine Inch Nails music. And then, of course, 
who he goes on and directs the social network and who does the score Trent Reznor yeah. and Atticus Ross. So it all comes full circle, but um, he sort of like has that sort of cool goth, like, I don't know, industrial feel. And this movie is like all about that grime of the city, um, the sweat. I mean, of course it's talking about the gluttony and, and uh, the seven deadly sins, but it's just like, it captures that feeling. I mean, he did panic room, Zodiac, and he was still doing music videos in between these. Like he ended up, he, he did, did a Nine Inch Nails video in 2005, like the two years before he did Zodiac. Then he did, you know, uh, he he did the video for Karen Owen, Trent Reznor for a immigrant song for his version of Girl the Dragon Tattoo. Um, just looking through his IMDb, I mean, Social Network is probably my favorite movie of his, which is, I don't know if that's an unpopular opinion. Um, because it's like probably his least like horror, like he's done, you know, not uh, Mike's, Mike hates his word, but thriller mm-hmm. like this, you could argue that seven's not a horror movie. It's a thriller, you know, or you could, especially, you know, like gone girl is definitely more of a thriller. Um, but like social network is probably the least of that. It's more of a, just a drama, but I love that. movie. Well, and Zodiac too, you could definitely tell the connection between this and seven, just the feel of the helplessness of that movie. Oh yeah. Very similar. Watching Zodiac. And you're just like, yeah. Trying to track down a killer. You know, you've got the characters that are being affected by what's happening around them. And, you know, Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Being completely full, you know, alcohol, you know, induced coma towards the end of the film and all that stuff. And all this stuff that just affects everything around. But I was going to mention before I forget that the guy in um, seven that had to put the uh, knife strap on, Mm-hmm. is the same guy that has the alien bursting through his chest in Aliens 4. Okay. And he literally does the same thing. It looks like the same, like he's playing the same character. So I wonder if somebody had help since, you know, David Fincher did stuff with Aliens 3. Like, hey, this guy can react to crazy stuff happening. Throw him in there and put a an egg sack at her, you know, or like right. have something burst out of his chest. Yeah, and yeah. I just, every time I see him, he's like, you know, they put that thing on me and I had to do this and do that. And I'm like... Uh, wait a minute. That's Aliens Four. Like you're... that's and and he. I mean, for being a guy that we don't even like off the top of my head, I don't know the actor's name. No, no clue. But one of the most memorable performances in this. Like, yeah, he's so intense, and he has to deliver a super intense. And it's like people. It's a little thing where it's like he could have overacted it, and it would have been like cringe, you know. Or he could have underacted it, and it would be forgettable. He he did a really great job, and like the minute he had in this movie. Um, but Howard Shore did the music and I was, I pulled up his IMDb and this guy, Howard Shore, um, has some uh, fantastic resume. He did music for Videodrome, The Fly, um, After Hour, Dead Ringer. So he did a lot of Cronenberg stuff. Um, and then he ended up doing, uh, Silence of the Lambs, um, just Mrs. Doubtfire, <laughs> Ed Wood, uh, which I think he, yeah, he did Ed Wood's score and one of the only, like, non Danny Elfman, um, Tim Burton scores. So there's a lot of crossover with like Tim Burton and David Fincher. I didn't realize here, uh, Philadelphia, um, before and after crash Copland, dogma, high fidelity. That's crazy. The cell panic room, uh, gangs of New York, Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, mm. so Howard, yeah, Howard Shore, I'm sure, you know, he's, he's right up there with, uh, you know, uh, 
all the big Hans Zimmer. Well, he's he's attached to John Williams and <laughs> New Line Cinemas definitely. Right. Got him oh on, yeah. Uh, yeah. They might have him on, on the, the on the on the phone for any movie. Yeah. Definitely. He's still going too. He just did uh, Pieces of a Woman last year. Uh, so, you know, it's cool to see like spot. He did Spotlight. So, uh, definitely someone who's got quite a resume too. So there's a lot of talent involved in this. It's it's sort of crazy to think like. They trusted the guy that did Alien Three to come in and do something like Seven, but New New Line Cinema, you know, they've sort of built their reputation on at first on trusting like unknown names. I mean, they called yeah. the house that Freddie built, and yeah. then years later, I mean, they they took the risk on uh, Final Destination and made it a huge franchise, you know. And well, I would have never thought that a company like New Line would be doing anything involving like Lord of the Rings too. Right. You know, it's it's crazy to to think about where they started from and where they've come like they they've they've come finally like it's it's insane. I mean, that's the thing though, it's taking risk on these people that are like, "Hey, I have an idea, like how much money can we do this for?" and you know, and no, it's turned out good for them, but yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the cinematographer Darius uh Kanji Kan I, I can't pronounce his last name. It's spelled K H O N D J I. But he did, um, much like Fincher, it looked like he worked on almost all of Fincher's music videos. Um, he did one of my favorites, uh, Delicatessen, a French sort of weird um, cannibal movie from the early 90s um, mm. that I really liked. But he, he did a lot of music videos before, and it looked like he's done quite a few, quite a few music videos after, um, but he's still working too. But it's just like, it, it, it it's weird because... You can say it has a music video quality, but not like in a bad way. Like I feel like if there's and, and people really rip on him, but like Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, his first feature like film feels like a movie that he filled in with a lot of music video cuts. Like yeah. Rob, you know, Rob got his start at making his own music video, so it feels like a feature length music video where this might have that style visually but it it's not it's not edited like a music video it's well done and well put together and showed that you know he's not just a music video director well and watching this film too i mean this film could be very uh forgettable if you didn't have the dialogue you had you know morgan freeman really pushed this film I mean, not that Brad Pitt wasn't was good in it, but it, without Morgan Freeman, I just don't feel that the the movie would have, I don't know, been as meaningful as it turns out to be. Because I mean, when you've got someone that's just okay, there's killing people, there seven you know deadly sins, and this happens, and but without that dialogue and those little personal moments, um, I just thought it really made the movie just better than you know something more than it you know should have been probably. But I just thought that. Uh, choosing the right actors and actresses can really, really change a film because I think, um, was it Ron Perlman? Didn't he do a film called seven deadly sins or I don't know something like that a while back. And I don't, i never saw it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a really intriguing idea though, to do something like that. Uh, but how do you, you know, how do you make that happen? Like, what are you going to show? What, what, what aren't you going to show? And, uh, I don't know. It's 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 weird to think about how this film turned out and the way it was, and definitely something that everyone needs to watch just because of. I don't think I'd ever seen a movie until then that was kind of a twist like that. At least I don't recall. But yeah, I mean, there's plenty of. It made me think of some of the classics that I think probably inspired it, like Silence of the Lambs. 
uh, yeah, that's Man true. Hunter, that that's kind true. of stuff. Um, there was stuff before, but it wasn't. Um, and of course, those are gruesome too. But like the way this was done was just very grimy and grisly. But like you said, you don't actually see any of the kills, so you feel like you're on this adventure with yeah. our two detectives. And we have sort of a yin and yang with Brad Pitt, who's considered, you know, he's he's done his time, but he's new to this police force, new to the city. Yeah. And so Morgan Freeman, who's literally on his way into retirement, um, you know, you have to earn your respect. And at first he's sort of seen as a hard ass, but it's clear he really does care. He just it's like literally he lives that life. He's jaded. Well, I yeah, mean, he's, he's seen, seen it so all. much. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, he lives the life of a detective. He doesn't just, he, he can't take, I mean, he doesn't have a wife to go home to. This is his life. This is what like gives him something to wake up for yeah. where, you know, Brad Pitt's character, he's got a wife at home. He's got dogs. He's still young. He still hasn't seen it. Like we see that at the first, you know, the first crime scene when he looks under the table and finds the bucket of vomit and he freaks out and Morgan Freeman tells him, you know, go outside and question the neighbors or the well, officers. Like, Did you see any blood in it? And he's like, well, right. you look at it, you know, right. and it's, he says something like, you know, have your, you know, you have a look. Yeah. And it's like, or have at it or something. It's like, clearly it's, it's not necessarily a thing of disrespect, but it's like, if you can't handle this, like go outside and do police work, you know, cause yeah. there's always been that sort of hierarchy of detectives or as they call them in this movie, dicks at times, yeah. um, are up here where the cops are a little bit lower. And, and throughout the movie, Morgan Freeman's character sort of alludes to the fact that, you know, you can pay off cops for stuff. And yep. he sort of, you know, he's like, you know, cops are sort of, especially in big cities, can be seen as like slime balls or skeezy. They'll take money for stuff. But um, he just has such a... And, and what's great about like the yin and yang of it is that like he is so calm and collected and cool and level headed throughout the movie. And Brad Pitt's sort of a young hothead who might overlook some details or let his emotions get to him and that can end up costing him. But luckily they have, you know, they're together as a team um, starts off really rough and, you know, throughout the movie gets better and better until they get actually really close because Brad Pitt's wife uh, she, Gwyneth Paltrow, she sort of confines to, uh, his partner, like to Morgan Freeman is like, comes to him when, cause, cause they just moved to this town. She has no one to go to and she knows he's seen it all, done it all, you know, and lives this, that's a hard life, you yeah. know? And she knows like, this guy's not married. This guy has no kids. Why is that? Well, you, it's a tough life. I mean, we, we watch them, they're working day and night. They don't go home. They don't sleep. If they do, they're sleeping on top of each other on a couch. I mean, yeah. it's not something I could ever do. Like you have to dedicate your life and you don't get to go home and just, you know, take, take a night off work and not think about it. I, I, and, and where did this, um, I, I don't know where they filmed it, but where was this supposed to be at? Was this Chicago or was this New York? Where I was, was thinking this at? New York, but I'm not sure. I mean, it looked pretty, uh, I don't know if it's. I'm I'll just look it curious up. how. Yeah, but I... but no, that was the thing. Like, you know, I think they balanced themselves out quite nicely with the yin and the yang. And you know, if it wasn't for Brad Pitt's character Mills just kicking that door in, would they have figured out more to come from the investigation and on what was going to happen next? Would that you know? What if he you know he shot at him? 
you know, in that hall scene. So it's kind of like Morgan Freeman's like, hey, you know, we can't go into this place because, you know, you, you have to have a warrant. We shouldn't right. be here anyway because we illegally got these, you know, this information um, from this, from the uh, records from the FBI and stuff on what books he checked out from the library to figure out who he was. But if Mills wouldn't have been so gun ho maybe they wouldn't have found him or even captured him to begin with. But it's it's kind of like it's a give and take. Both those characters have to be there, and they play off each other really well. Right. And so that's, I think that's, I, I like how they wrote that into the movie, where it's not just, they, certain things happen because of this character's reaction to this. So it was really cool how they did that. What'd you find out? Um, looking at, I, I Googled it, and apparently... Um, it's never mentioned where this is at. Oh, they filmed it in LA, but, um, on the commentary, David Fincher talks about ways they shot LA. So it looked like New York city, but he wanted it to be sort of a nameless, big, dirty crime ridden city. So not necessarily specifically kind of feels like the crow. Yeah. Where the crow has its own. I don't know if the crow mentions it's anywhere or if it's in Detroit or if it's in. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it probably made a choice not to like put it somewhere, but it definitely. And the city becomes its own character. Right. So that's, yeah, especially yeah, in this, it's like, but, but you know, it is surprising. Like, again, we're jumping all over, but at the end when, you know, the big reveal is and he, he takes them out to find the California. With well, all those. well, yeah, they're driving out in like, the hills basically it's like does new york i don't you have to drive really far to get that kind of stuff in new york yeah so there you go right there i didn't so, even yeah. think about that yeah i don't know i was wondering about that when we were watching it i'm like where is this how far from? away did they have to go if they're in a big city to find this like almost desert like area or plains or something is weird but um again it could just be a fictional city that doesn't exist or nameless city i don't know yeah just a big big grimy city but um yeah, it's cool. Like you know, obviously the first the first kill that we come across is just a is a big fat dude that's force fed. So to like out of all of them, what do you think was like? I mean, obviously, um, this not not counting the final end scene. What do you think was like the most horrific one? I I mean, I would say what what they kind of did with this film is they slowly, um kind of made the killings worse ramp them up uh you know apart from the whole cutting off the nose situation with the girl and being ugly on the inside and that kind of stuff i thought that was a little weak to to introduce later on in the film versus what we saw but i would assume would be the killing of um the guy that took a year to do oh yeah that I was mean, totally you're, fucked you're, you're, you're looking you're at the situation a year, life, a, year yeah. a year and you're letting this guy and you're keeping him alive too you're, you know, amputating certain things and you're making sure he is not going to have bed bugs or bed sores or whatever he's got going on by laying in the filth that he was in. So that kind of was like, what the hell? And I, I think he had had, I don't know what his crimes were. Was he like a molester or something like that? Or they mentioned something. Because uh, I, I was trying to pinpoint what was each sin, you know? I mean, obviously, the the guy that was absurdly obese... I guess his sin itself is just being fat, so being glutton. And I don't know really if the guy was a decent guy or not. I don't really know if that's just a sin to be that big. And we're, you know, it's, you know, told later on in the film where, you know, if you saw him on the street, you'd make fun of him and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, that one's a little questionable. He, but he does say, like, 
I think he rationalizes it by saying, like, if you saw him in public, you would not want to finish your meal. Yeah. It's like, really? That's That was your, yeah, that's reason the worst to... crime. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where I think he, the killer is just so disgusted by life and what we do to each other and to ourselves, especially to ourselves with the whole gluttony thing that this person just needs to be put out of their misery and no one's going to miss him anyway. Well, so yeah, that's once, what they kind of... Once again, that's sort of why it like, gave me a Saw vibe because Jigsaw, you know, has rationale in his mind. These people don't appreciate life, so I make yeah. them. Um, but, you know, he we, we actually would see the tortures and stuff, but like... To think like 95 seeing this stuff was, I mean, of course we had 80s gore and stuff, but like this is a real life depiction of this kind of stuff. It's not, um, you know, um, red paint splattered on the wall or someone getting decapitated or, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, to, at the end there's, there literally is that, but um, it's not, you know, a gore fantasy. It's like, you, especially the first scene, like we don't see blood, we see this big obese guy bent over who drowns in food and he, you see his veins. And, and when we see the, the person who has been kept alive and that they, you know, luckily, like I said, I, I love that. I, my brain while I'm watching a movie, I can try to figure stuff out and I never can. I'm, I don't know. If I'm just never good at figuring out the ending. Like when you were like, well, you knew the ending, right? Like, no, but, um, when he breathed, like he took a breath in, we realized he's alive. Like, it was like, I almost took the same breath. I'm like, Oh shit. Like, yeah. How, and how fucked up is that? And the, the, you know, the doctor's like, if you flash shine a flashlight in his eyes, he might die from shock. Like he's been kept on the edge of death for a year. And, you know, I'm surprised they even got into the hospital alive, but it's like, it, it, that one was fucking, he looked like a mummy. Like, but, but, that's what someone would look like if I mean, he did that, you know? You look at the, the details they put into scenes, especially with him, like, okay, well, wouldn't somebody notice the smell? And they've got tons of car fresheners hanging yeah. from the ceiling to kind of, you know... Mask the smell. I mean, the details they put into this, okay, well, if we've got somebody that's been sitting here for a year. They're going to start to waste away. They're going to have, you know, there's buckets for different, you know, fluids and such. How is the neighbors not going to notice something? As a writer, director, or whatever, you're sitting there thinking, okay, how are we going to do this? How do I get this? around this? Yes. How can make we make it believable? this? Or most people back in the 90s and even in the 80s, they're like, well, who cares? Right, it's a they movie. Just, they, it's just movie wanna, logic. they just want to see who's killing this right. or who's killing that. But that's where this is different because you've got a movie where you're not sitting there watching kills. You're seeing the after effect of this. So those details better be good when you walk into that scene. And you're also a third detective in the movie as a viewer. So you're sitting there looking at the clues. I mean, I having things like um, where the lawyer, um, he dies, the second killing after the, the big guy, you know, having that to where we're going to put blood around the, the wife's eyes to see if, you know, I'm going to see if she sees something that we're not going to see. Right. You know, and having to go and do a whole scene where they're like, look at these photos. What is different about this room? And she's like, I can't, I can't do this. And she's like, well, the painting's upside down. There's no way they'd ever fucking know that. Right. And the fact it's an that abstract he, painting. That yeah. and he unscrewed it and rehung it opposite. Like right. he actually redid it. And those little details well, like, that's holy shit. Like, it's funny because when they took that painting off the wall, I thought it was going to be a mistake in the movie where I'm like, Well, as someone who hangs posters, I'm like, most people wouldn't notice like that you, you could just flip it over. Like, no, you can't when the hangers are up towards the top. I mean, you yeah. know that from, you just you just bought a house a, a while ago and you've been hanging up posters. You know that, you know, you can't hang them from the, the middle. You have to put them in. It's yep. very particular. So if, you, if the hanger would have been 
on the other end, the po- the the painting would have been higher up on the wall or lower. Yeah. So it was smart. He had to take out the hangers and reinstall them so that it would be at the same level on the wall so the detectives wouldn't question it, but make the wife. And then by doing that, the wife had a look at the murder scene. You know, so he yeah. essentially made her look at not only so he wins either way. Right, I mean, right, he yeah. gets them to play his game, right, and also gets to be like, hey, now she has to see her husband, her crappy husband that lets these free people that are supposed to go to jail, you know, go and which you is know, a very uh, Dexter slash uh, oh yeah saw thing too, you know, where yeah yeah letting letting murderers and getting killers out, and and of course it comes back towards the end when he has his own lawyer, and it's like, do you want to make a a bargain with him and. It's fucked up to think, you know, that's a whole different discussion, but like that literally exists. That's our, that's our legal system. It's like, you know, yeah. you are appointed, even if you can't afford one, the state will appoint you someone who will defend you and try to get you out of what you've done, which is wild to think about, but you know, innocent till proven guilty. But it's sort of funny to think like, what I found was really interesting is that a lot of these movies too, you know, we don't find out until the very end, like we don't even get close to who it is. And I was like, Oh, when, when they do go knocking on the door and it's funny because it's like, was that intentional? Did he lead them to his apartment? Uh, I don't think so. I think there was, cause he says there was like a lapse. He says something like that when he calls his, he, own has, house. To change, he has to change, change the plan because I mean, just like the last victim or victims, wouldn't have obviously been those victims because if he wouldn't have knocked on that door or if he wouldn't have got those uh, library records for the books, I mean, you could almost say Somerset is the reason this happened. And he had no idea who, what detectives would be put on the job starting with his first kill. He had taken a photo of them when they were doing the... uh, Was it the first or second? It was the The one with the guy in the... uh, Or was it third? With the, uh, the, with the no arm. The okay, was so, over the, so yeah. the, he he had known, okay, this is who's doing this. This is part of the investigation. But if Somerset wouldn't have got those library records, I would assume, and went to that door and he would have been bringing groceries home at that same time, this ending would have been completely different. Right. And I mean, it's weird. Like, and I don't know if Somerset himself thinks, shit, I put her at and risk it, yeah. by allowing us to get too close to this killer. I don't know, but it's it's things that you think about where you're like, what yeah. the fuck? Like, yeah, it, it's funny because he he covers all these grounds, but he somehow left. He actually had his real address on his library card. Come on, man. Well, that's the thing too. There, the scene with with Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow in the uh, diner that happened after that picture was taken, right? Yeah. I would love to find out, and there's I I would it would be amazing if it's actually there, but it would be a crazy situation if the killer is actually in that breakfast scene. Oh, somewhere, yeah. And sees her, and that's the connection he makes to her. Like, who is this person? And how he knows that, that may, she's, yeah, That may be, and, yeah. I don't know, but, like, I mean, he would know that from her pleading for her life at the right, end there. Right, yeah. But if they stuck him somewhere in that breakfast scene, because how else would he have known to, I mean, yeah, you know, you, as a, as a reporter or whatever he wanted to be presumed as, you could pay cops to tell you anything, but it's right. so weird that how many connections that could be made or what route they could take in this film that led them to this. So like, it's, that's the thing. That's why this movie is good and it works. It's because you're, you're talking about this. 
You're actually thinking about this. Right. If it was that bad or a throwaway film, you wouldn't give a shit. You're like, eh, whatever. They, the people did some sins and they died and whatever, you know. What, what I sort of like, too, about my own ignorance when it comes to stuff is, like, I know some people who will watch something like this and instantly try to find plot holes and, and reasons. to. And it's like, my mind doesn't go there. I'm just like, I love that they bring us along for this wild ride where it's like, you know, they like you said, with the wife, they paint around her eyes. So they have to show her the pictures. Oh, the paintings upside down. So they take apart the painting. There's nothing here. Oh, he climbs up on the furniture and now there's fingerprints. Why would the killer leave his own fingerprints? They're not his fingerprints. It's the hand of the next victim that he Bread cut crumbs. off. Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Yeah. And he just leaves them. It's like, yeah, leading these little breadcrumbs around. Um, and so like it built up to this, you know, finale when they're out in the middle of nowhere and I'm still along for the ride. And I see this like van coming down Am I, you know, I'm, I'm like, again, I'm, I'm so stupid, which is great. My brain is so dumb sometimes where I'm like, oh, there's two left. You know, it's like he did five. So there's like two left. It's going to be the two detectives. He's going to like somehow come out here and kill them both. And then I'm like, well, how would that, that would be anticlimactic. Like, how would he, how would this van come down? Just come out and shoot him. That'd be, that wouldn't work. And then when the, when he delivered the box, my mind was instantly like, okay, I know what's in the box now. Um, I felt proud of myself for a second, but I'm like, obviously, I mean, any idiot could have known what was going to be in that box. Cause in these kinds of stories, it's always a story about like, do you have to protect the ones you love? Because you're, he's been putting work before his, his life, you know, and, and Morgan Freeman talked about that in that dining diner scene, which is why it's so important is like, he says, you know, I was, you know, I was almost married at one point. Um, we were going to have a kid, and I told her not to do it. And it's like, I don't want to bring up a kid in this world. But if you do have it, spoil it every chance you get. But it's like, yeah. she's clearly unhappy with the move there. But she doesn't want to say anything to her husband because she knows how much he sacrificed to be there. And it takes a special kind of person to do that. Thank God there's people who want to do that because I'd never fucking... It's clever in the way they do it. They almost slowly like make you forget that he's married for a little bit. Like they slowly remove her from the film. Like she's there. She, he goes home after drinking at the bar and then that's the last time. Mm-hmm. And so they, they kind of slowly space her out through the film and, and, and to kind of not make you think about it. Cause that's the last thing you're going to think about is, I mean, until you get that box, which right. by the way, the driver of that van was David Arquette's brother. Okay. Um, but uh, it's it's crazy, though, uh, to sit there and, and, and think about, you know, how to put this film together, you know. And I, I've read there's some different alternate endings, but they don't really go into too much details. I would really love to see them, though, if they filmed any of them or if they just kind of were like, OK, this was what we were going to choose. But I I don't know. I, I just find small moments in this film to be just really good. And it's held up so well because... I, more than most people, I feel I've just become so jaded by films. Nothing's really impressed me lately. Like, I, I've seen them before, okay? It's not that I don't want to see the films. I'm, I'm happy to see a movie. But it's hard to just shut my mouth anymore and be like, dude, this is kind of shitty. Like, I, 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 I wish I could go back to thinking of, you know, having this kid-like mentality of just being like, oh, that was fucking sweet. Like, I love it. 
But it's funny watching this film. I still have that excitement at the end of that film, that buildup. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, oh, shit. And I've seen this movie a million times. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, it's going to happen. Like, you know, I think certain movies are just going to move you differently than, than others. And I think that we're in a weird spot where everything's kind of been done. Well, no, like, it's funny you say that because, like, when that does happen, it's super exciting. And we had that, like, Nikki and I, when we went and saw um, Everything Everywhere All at Once last week, that was absolute for both of us. Like, when the credits came up, I was, like, looked over at her and she's like, that's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. And it blew us both away. And I can't say enough about it. I talked for two hours last week about it, but it's like that you know it's a rare occasion now when that happens and it's like am i jaded have i just seen too much or is it just like is it a combination of that and regurgitation in hollywood i I, you know yeah i don't know i i think we're at a point where if you can find the right balance in a film that sparks that feeling of excitement again and just like experiencing something new which is hard to get back or you could see the level of detail or, or how well the story was done. So you gain, you know, that visual experience that really makes you remember, you know, why you enjoyed that movie. But I mean, I don't know. It's weird because I, I think about all these other films like in the early 2000s and stuff. And there were so many sequels and you're just like, oh, I'm just happy to have it come out. And and yeah, that's how I felt. And then I see movies now and I'm like, well, I you kind of just didn't need to make it like you could have just kept it, you know, that, that, that I'm more focused though with the prequels and the sequels and the requels and everything like that. So that's why it's nice to find films like seven. That's just held up so well over this many years and it's its own thing. It, it hasn't had a sequel or a prequel. So it's, you know, a movie that you could tell a story in one shot and that's what you get, you know, enjoy it. And that's all you're going to get from us. You know, right. And, closed book. Yeah. 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 It's sort of like a moment in time where, this was pre-Fight Club Brad Pitt, so he was obviously still famous, but he wasn't as big as he had ended up getting. You know, yeah, obviously oh yeah. he's not he wasn't the Brad Pitt that but uh probably like his first role where he's taken seriously and not just like a cute, you know, handsome guy. Like he had he was a heavy hitter in this, but also he got he obviously I mean just great casting because putting him into this first time of like a dramatic role, you have Morgan Freeman there to back him up. Like and Morgan Freeman was a huge heavy hitter in the nineties. Right, when you yeah. think about all the food movies he was. Oh in, yeah, like, absolutely. And so to have him there to like carry it while Brad Pitt can sort of cut his teeth on yeah. doing a dramatic role for the first time was important and just really good casting because like I said, he's, you know, and it's, it's still sometimes sort of hard to believe like a guy this good looking is going to be a detective, but, um, you know, he, he, he played it off well. And I think he has proven himself over the years that he's not just a pretty face. He's, he's a really good actor. Well, and they, and they also, his hair was dark in this. It wasn't the blonde that you're used to seeing it. They, they roughed him up a bit, I think. And it's impressive as hell because you've got two characters that that's, they're the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, you've got to rely on each other, the entire film with some supporting cast. And that's pretty impressive. Like it's cool to carry a movie in such a way where, you have all these other films that are just overly bloated with characters. Right. So there's no development. You don't care about one character to the next unless it's the main character. Right. All these side characters are throwaways. So then you don't really know what to focus on. And that's why it's kind of a, it's nice to see a story like this that is kind of a smaller film, even though it's, it's a large scale film for what it kind of did, but it's more of an intimate feel to the movie. 
and where there's you know not too much going on. Props to David Fincher. Maybe it wasn't his choice, but this is only like a little over two hours, like two hours seven minutes. It feels or a lot longer though. I don't know. I felt to me I was going in expecting like I know David Fincher Zodiac oh, like, like three hours. Yeah, you know everything he's doing now. Social everything is. is it could have been longer though. It could have. I would have been happy to. have But it I longer. like that. You know. You know, sort of. There's no fat on this movie at all. No. Everything, every scene is necessary. Like, And that was maybe, but then again, there wasn't many movies that were over two hours in the 90s. It seems like everything was like 130, you know, right. or 30 minutes. So this was probably a pretty long movie considering, you know, when you think of some of the 90s films yeah. that were like type of this, kind of like a horror right. slash detective film. And in going back sort of to how important like that breakfast scene was and stuff like you know they were really setting up the uh, setting us up for the sad ending because it's like we find out so much about her and how much she's struggling and how much she loves her husband and all that stuff and they make her really likable especially when she invites him over for dinner and we see even like uh, Morgan Freeman we see him his character just um, for the first time actually smile and laugh and not just be a sort of grumpy old man. Uh, seeing people out, he, he sort of like puts down his guard for the first time in the movie and it's with her and she sort of has that, it seems to have that like personality that will bring that out in people. And so, like you said, they set us up and then we don't see her for a while. So we don't suspect what's coming. That breakfast scene's essential for yeah. you to connect to that character, because if that scene didn't exist, you wouldn't care as much at the end. You're right. like, well, Absolutely. that sucks for him, but having her and, and and Morgan Freeman share that moment of what to do when you have a child or whether you choose or not choose and having that connection between two different situations. And it's just like, wow, there's a lot of emotion in one little breakfast scene. Yeah. Very human. And it, and it doesn't feel like it's part of the movie when you see it first, you're just like, okay, she just needs to talk about this, but where is this going? Right. And then you're like, okay, this shit has to be there. It has to be there. Right. So like to think about that, or I mean, I don't know, like I feel like other movies at the time wouldn't have done little things like that so delicately, like to make sure, okay, we've got to put this puzzle together. It planted a seed. Yeah. This has to be here because then this won't, how do we make this work? Right. Yeah. Planted a seed for us later to blossom when, um, again, spoiler alert, if you've made it this far, but, um, when we find out that her head is in the box at the very end, he, um, our John Doe play by Kevin Spacey. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a weird time too, where Kevin Spacey's in a lot of great movies, you know, this American, American beauty, right. Um, baby driver, just in so many fantastic movies. And we found out he's a monster in real life. Apparently not though, since they've, I don't know, they, isn't he free to do whatever now or well, whatever? Well, I mean, he's, he, <laughs> if, if someone wants to hire him, he, he is, but, um, he's essentially, yeah, yeah sort he, of he's blacklisted. ruined. Yeah. But, uh, you know, erase all that, you know, looking, go, let's take a time machine back to 95, you know, uh, a very small role for a big name actor. Um, but I think that's, you know, very cool to like, put a big name actor in this role um, and hide him through the whole movie and then only reveal him in like the last 20, 30 minutes. Was this right after Usual Suspects or a couple years after? Um, I think this might have been right before maybe. I'm not sure. Oh, it could have been before. Was that Kevin Spacey's first film? No way. No. No, okay. Because I was like, man, I don't re- I'm trying to remember what he was in though. 95, so same year he did, did, did oh, okay. Usual Suspects. So, okay. Yeah, he, he'd been in some stuff, but uh, just sort of cool to like basically keep him hidden you know and and 
I imagine like I'm glad I didn't watch the trailer. I did not know he was in this. I did see him on the IMDb when I pulled it up before watching, but I my mind just completely like I can I can wipe the slate clean and I didn't think about when we start watching it. I didn't think like where is Kevin Spacey in this because that would have ruined it for me. I'm like, oh well, duh. You don't put a big name actor in a small role unless you know it's a big reveal at the end. Yeah, but uh, he has a very much like Hannibal Lecter type role. Oh yeah, where he's a he's much smarter than everybody. He's outsmarting everybody, or at least thinks he is. Um, can toy with people's psychology. I mean, very much it reminded me of that performance by Anthony Hopkins. Uh, but yeah, really uh, a great performance for how small it was. Well, and it was clever uh, for the film to not give too much information about him. It's better left unsaid about why he is the way he is or, you know, how is he independently rich? You know, what what are these things? And right. why is he spending how long filling out this entire room full of just written journals and all his thoughts getting spilled onto the pages. Like, what are we doing with this character? Like, and, and, and it makes the audience like, man, how, what is he like? Why is he this way? Don't tell us. You right. Know, I, I don't want to know because and my mind's going to be more creative. Yeah. If just they did thinking of some random that, crazy and it, things. And it was a hit at the box office. The studio instantly would be like, how can we do a prequel where he wrote all these books and we he get, had a son? We can get deep into his mind, like a pre, you know a prequel on, on how he became who he is and all this shit. But uh, it also sort of puts some more weight on the ending where he's shot because th- they'll never know now. You know, like more like both of them, both detectives now, they will never ever get answers because he's f- dead. On the fact that he completed his seven deadly sins because of that, the fact that he won. Right. Everyone lost. Like, I mean, now you got Morgan Freeman. He's like, oh, I'll be around. I'm not going to retire now. Like, fuck, I'm just going to. Yeah. Because I want to make sure Mills is okay and everything. And like. Yeah, I thought uh, I, I was like counting the shots he put into John Doe Mills. And I'm like, is he saving one for himself? Because I think in that situation, I would. There was a couple endings where one where um, Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> Speaking of Matrix, uh, so no, but Morgan Freeman basically pulled out a switchblade and was able to stop Mills in time. Or basically, I think there was another one where Morgan Freeman got shot Hmm. or he shot Mills and killed him before he could do it. And there was also a scene at a church, uh, I guess, and they were racing to get to her before she died. It was weird stuff like that that I kind of looked up on here that they don't really give too much details, but... I would absolutely love to see like, oh man, this is crazy. You know, that's what's cool about deleted scenes uh, that kind of unearth themselves over so many years where you're like, holy shit, I didn't know that scene. Like just seeing footage from something that was 20 some years old that you'd never seen, you know, pop up and be like, wow, this is crazy. This would have, you know, really changed the movie or blah, 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 blah. But no, people need to go see this movie. It's, it's easy to find, I think. Yeah. So, um, we're going to go over some trivia here, um, but we'll take a quick break to hear from the Prescribed Film Podcast Network, which is a, uh, a fantastic film podcast network that uh, this show, Attack of the Killer Podcast, are on. Also, um, just sort of giving a shout out to um, our friends over at the Genre Exposure Podcast. Uh, they are a biweekly podcast plumbing the depths of genre films from old, new, cult, transgressive, uh, and transgressive. Uh, so... Go over to the PFPN, pfpn.com, check them out, and then we'll be right back. (music) 
You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. And we are back. There are 185 things on IMDb Trivia. So I will not obviously read them all because um, we have to sleep eventually. But um, just I'm just going to scroll through and read some fun stuff. Um, New Line executives originally balked at the film's ending, but Brad Pitt refused to make the film if the ending was changed. Um, pretty cool. Uh, Brad Pitt bought his own ties for the movie because he wanted Mills to have poor fashion sense. Mm. Um, David Fincher told Kevin Spacey and Brad Pitt, this is not going to be the movie that you're remembered for, but it may be a movie you're incredibly proud of. Um, Brad Pitt fell while filming the scene in which Mills chases John Doe in the rain. His arm actually went through a car windshield requiring surgery, so they worked it into the script where he wore that bandage and how you know he ended up hurting himself in that scene, um, but he actually did. Coincidentally, the original script called for Detective Mills to be injured during the sequence. Um, Denzel Washington turned down the part that went to Brad Pitt, telling Entertainment Weekly that the film was too dark and evil for him. He later regretted that decision upon seeing a screening. Let's see. um, Just going to scroll through here. All of John Doe's books were real books written for the film. They took two months to complete and cost $15,000. According to Morgan Freeman, two months is about the time it would take the police to read all the books. That's crazy. Um. Brad Pitt considers this to be one of the most perfect films he's ever made. Um, makeup for the sloth victim took over 14 hours. Let's see. And again, I, I did not, I, I, I were recording this right after um, I saw it, so I didn't have time to sort of skim through this, so I'm doing it in real time. Uh, David Fincher wanted the credits to look like a killer had written them, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. He was David Fincher was determined to make the film without compromising his vision. On his first film, Alien Three, he battled with the studio and was fired three times. This was the seventh highest grossing film of nineteen ninety five, which wow. is just a nice coincidence that it was, you know, seven. Yeah. Um, in two thousand one, the Patriot Act gave the government the ability to monitor library records, something which at one point halfway through the film is stated to not be necessarily legal. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Pitt praised Kevin Spacey's performance, saying he, he's got more control on it than I do. Um, Brad Pitt earned $7 million for starring in this film. I don't know if that's, that's probably not a lot. I mean, looking back, but uh, at the time, he wasn't probably demanding the money that he could now. Yeah. A uh, cockroach expert used Vaseline to keep bugs on the set. According to David Fincher, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman were perfect during the first read-through of the script. Val Kilmer turned down the role of John Doe. That'd be interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Mills apartment is built on a shakable platform. The crew would trick visitors with the set with instant earthquakes. That's crazy. Yeah. wondered how they did that. So here, here's an interesting one that we were talking about, the city. The police badge used in the film, the, the badges used in the film do not identify the city. It only says Metropolitan 
Oh, okay. So they went out of their way to make sure it's not, uh, you know, identifiable. The word fuck and its derivatives are said a discernible 74 times throughout the movie, mostly by Brad Pitt. I don't even remember that much cussing. I guess that's no. why you get so used to it. Yeah. The box full of photographs that the sloth scene had written has written on the side to the world from me. Um, before Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt were cast, and please take these with a grain of salt because anybody can write these, um, Al Pacino and Denzel Washington were early choices for Somerset and Mills, respectively. Uh, Pacino declined, and he was already scheduled to film City Hall, and Washington turned on the offer, which um, we talked about earlier. And I'll just pick a couple other ones so I don't uh, just go all night. Sylvester Stallone turned down, turned down the role of Mills. He told Ain't It Cool News that this was a mistake. I don't know. I, I would. I love Stallone, but not in this. No. He, he's a great actor, but it's just he's Stallone in every movie. Yeah. Then again, you could say the same thing about Morgan Freeman. Uh, but then again, I look at Morgan Freeman in this, and I'm just like, I don't know. Like I, I feel this character is a lot different than some of the other characters just with how... Um, I just I don't know it, it's but you I mean with any actor you could say oh Brad Pitt's movies are all the same well they're not really when you look at this movie and you compare it to Meet Joe Black right <laughs> like that's a completely two different characters yeah. so um yeah a, you're right Stallone though definitely yeah you know, he's Stallone <laughs> a uh, cut out sequence near the beginning had Somerset looking over the country house into which he's planning on moving. Yeah, that was a deleted scene. Yeah, on he the uses a DVD. switchblade to cut loose a rose on a fragment of silk wallpaper and carries it with him throughout the movie. The rose falls out of his jacket as he is taking off his gun before eating with the Mills family. Um, the rose is briefly visible in the opening scene, sitting atop a handkerchief on his dresser. So they cut out that whole side thing. Um, Brad Pitt didn't take his shirt off in the film because Legends of the Fall had just made him a sex symbol but he still won the MTV Movie Award for Most Desirable Male for this role, which is just weird in this movie. Like, he's not playing... I mean, obviously, he's still an attractive guy, but it's like... It was that ooh-la-la part when he said ooh-la-la. You're like, ooh, Brad Pitt. It's probably when he was like... <laughs> when he was like uh, roughhousing with the dogs. I was like, aw. Yeah. Like, any guy who roughs, roughhouses with dogs is cute, right? Shaving his chest without removing a nipple. So this movie spent four consecutive weeks at the top of the U.S. box office charts, which, yeah, this had to have launched David Fincher's career after Alien 3 did not. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. David Fincher approached making the film as a tiny genre movie, the kind of movie Friedkin might have made after The Exorcist. Sort of cool. Uh, and I'll I'll sort of try to... This is the third slowest film to reach 100 million in the U.S. box office after Shakespeare in Love, um, which also featured Gwyneth Paltrow, and Unforgiven, which also featured Morgan Freeman. Here's something that Blake might find interesting: the Platinum Series DVD from New Line Cinema is mastered from a new HD TV transfer, which was made directly from the camera negative. This required that the whole film had to be regraded, regraded digitally, applying color and contrast correction to every shot under the director's supervision. The resulting HDTV master is now the official master of the film. The digital corrections are quite extensive in some shots uh, as the extra features demonstrate in detail. So this yeah. is the old one on the DVD. So then obviously they had to redo it again on, on Blu-ray. 
Oh, really? That was for the DVD they yeah. did it? So I wonder if... Uh, that's right, because what they did was they originally had the DVD where you had to flip the disc over to finish the rest of it, and then they came out with the one that looked like an actual like notebook. And then that was that had the, the um, details of the remastering and stuff like that. And I'm not sure what was did they say what was the reason for them to want to do that, or they just wanted to clean it up? Just... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, David Cronenberg was offered a chance to direct this, but he turned it down. That would be very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've talked about it on the show a few times. Like uh, Matt Gorley uh, from the uh, Gorley and Russ podcast talks about like. He, if there was an afterlife, he would hope that his heaven would be a video store where all these alternate versions of movies exist, where you could just pull David Cronenberg's Seven off the shelf and watch it. Because it's like, I wonder what that would have been like. Or you could go see the Stallone version, you know. And he's like, if there was ever an afterlife, that's the that's the heaven I want is just all these alternate movies. I, I do think that if uh, David Fincher, how much stuff has he done for TV? Uh, well, he. It, I'm trying. Does he do? Did he do the thing on Netflix? Mindhunter is that him? Maybe I can't. I, because I think if he was to do something, he could do seven as like a seven part series. Oh, that'd be cool. And do a completely different ending, and have just like you know, these are some ideas that I toyed around with that I couldn't use, and do this thing on HBO Max or whatever you want to choose, and make a nice gritty seven part. Yeah, I think it would it would do well. I mean, if you just you know. It has to make sense though, so something cool though. Yeah, some some more um, recasting. We have uh, Kevin Costner and Nick Cage were briefly considered for the role of Mills. Uh, Christina Applegate turned down the role of Tracy. Oh. Uh, Gene Hackman was offered the role of Somerset, but turned it down because of too many night shoots. And Robert Duvall was offered the role of Somerset, but turned it down. So apparently, like everybody was offered this role, um, and then. You know, we got who we did. Oh, here's another one. At one point, Harrison Ford was considered for the role of Somerset. Mm. I don't know how much I believe all this stuff. I think they're just listing every single right. A-list actor they could find that... I mean, you know, it's weird to say this where you're like, I couldn't ever see this, you know, person not be in this role. But, you know, there's probably tons of people that you would have almost gotten. And, you know, this is who you, you now see as this person in this role. But uh, definitely will change a movie you know, for, for, for good or bad, I guess, depending on who you choose, but. Yeah. Arlie Ermey, uh, auditioned for the role of John Doe. Uh, David Fincher recollects the former Marine drill instructor made the serial killer character completely unsympathetic. Um, not that Kevin's more unsympathetic said the director, but he felt Ermey's take on the character was cut and dry without much room for any gray area. So I think, uh, it's cool that he he went out for John Doe and he actually got a more beefy role. Yeah, like I thought he did a really good job. He sort of got typecast, you know, as that intense asshole. I mean, he played essentially the same character in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, uh, that he did in Full Metal Jacket, um, just in Texas rather than on a military base. But uh, it's cool to see him, sort of, you know. He, I mean, he's a hard ass, but he's not the typical like stereotypical movie. Um, sort of head of the police that's always a super tense uh overstressed asshole like he's actually sort of more calm than brad pitt's character did you notice that uh in the swat scene the one guy that was the doctor in scrubs yes yeah and uh one of the guys in the off office space yeah <laughs> i thought that was like i was like dude that guy was bulked up back then like he was ready to kill somebody <laughs> The writer Andrew Kevin Walker envisioned William Hurt as Somerset. Um, he would go on to play 
a police detective in Dark City. Uh, the name of Jodie Foster is mentioned in a film reference to Murderer's Obsession. Uh, obviously, she starred in Panic Room, um, directed by David Fincher, but we know her from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Which I, I heard that right away. I was like, I, I sort of, you know, it's hard not to compare the two. But, uh, yeah, I will, uh, I think we're almost right down to the bottom. The U.S. LaserDisc suggested a retail price of forty nine ninety nine. We're pretty lucky that uh, we get cheap stuff. Well, yeah, five bucks now if you want to buy this movie. Buy it, guys. It's worth it. <laughs> and then um, there's some cameos. Alfonso Freeman, Morgan Freeman's son, is a fingerprint technician in this. No shit. Um, okay. Andrew, this is a good one. Andrew Kevin Walker, the writer of the movie, he plays the f- the first corpse, the fat guy. Whoa! Obviously, a lot of makeup on him. He's I would that, hope so. Yeah, he's not that big of a guy. Okay, I was I was hoping. Uh, oh, this one's not that interesting. Charles Dutton is the cop who keeps the press out of the greed crime scene. Um, he also was had a big role in Alien Three. Mm. That's not that exciting. There's a bunch of uh, other stuff, but. Uh, Kevin Spacey was cast two days before filming. That's cool. Wow. All the building numbers in the opening scene start with seven. And the climactic delivery was scheduled for 7 p.m. See, I'm, I'm so dumb I didn't even catch that one. He's like, what time is it? Yeah, he's seven. Like, seven. Yeah. And then apparently it's seven, what is it, seven minutes or something. They said on here uh, from when you see uh, the wife's face, it's like a countdown until he dies like within seven seconds or something like that they did some weird yeah um when filming the sloth victim scene the swat officers were not the the actors playing the swat officers were not told that the victim was still alive so when he coughs (laughs) he actually scares the swat officers so they they caught a real reaction that's nice yeah that's pretty cool um yeah Bob Rob Botton used a set of exaggerated teeth to make the head look smaller, more shrunken from malnutrition on the uh, sloth victim. So Rob Botton, um, you might know from another very big, um, one of my favorite movies of all time, John Carpenter's The Thing. So that makes sense that he did special effects makeup for both of these. Yeah. Pretty cool. That's like 10 years after The Thing. Yeah. Maybe more, 81. So yeah, like... Holy crap. Like, yeah, so it's cool that he's still consistently at that time. I just... We don't get a lot of really cool practical makeup effects anymore, so... Yeah, um, you know, props to him. I last I heard, after like that that sort of dried up as far as special effects makeup, he literally just like went off the grid. Like no one knows how to get a hold of him anymore. Wow. And he has you know one of the most outside of like Savini, one of the biggest names. So yeah, really cool. I, like I said, I could read through these all night, but um, yeah, that's seven. Did you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no, I just think, uh, if you haven't seen it or if you have try to revisit it cause it still holds up really, really well and, uh, watch it on Blu-ray. It Highly recommended. It's pretty good. Bring this out on 4k for us, right? Yeah, I know. It needs to get a little 4k push. I'm just amazed. Like 95. I really didn't expect that when I opened up the IMDb page, I was thinking like late at the, like 99, 2000 something. I think that if we were to find, and I'm sure we could find, a DVD copy of the one that's just the flip disc one and watch that and compare it, we could probably definitely be like, wow, this is aged. Like, you know, this looks really bad. Right. So, like, it was one of those films that, and there wasn't that many of them at that time that got the uh, the luxury of having them cleaned up so well. So they must have really wanted to do it, and that's great that they did, but dvds didn't look that great you know they were just kind of like well we're gonna throw a vhs on here and 
it's still going to be compressed and you know this is what you get and but uh it's aged very very well i mean it was really well taken care of so i'm hoping that we get like a 4k or a criterion or something to wear you know yeah and just i'm glad i finally got this off the list and it wasn't a, like i i sort of talk about this sometimes it passed the phone test i did not pull out my phone once during the movie so that's oh it keeps you engaged right like I know that's a weird thing, but like a lot of times I'm guilty of even like on the movies we watch for AOTKP, like I'll be sitting there and I don't even do it consciously. I just suddenly pull my phone out and scroll and I'm like, shit, I've missed like the last 10 minutes. So I have to go back and I'm like this. I never was even tempted. I'm like so into it. It just, what we talked about, um, I sort of made a joke about them using like landline phones and you're like, oh, I didn't even think about it because I'm so engaged in the story. It like put me right into that time period where it didn't, it's not even distracting. No, not at all. Which which, like, is funny because you, you watch a movie from like, if it would have been set like, I don't know, five, 10 years later and people had, had uh, flip phones or like those Nokia's like that will instantly take you out of a movie. I think this film uses the surrounding environment very like it, 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 it's, it doesn't pop out at you. They're like, oh shit, phone's ringing. And you don't care if the phone is a landline or a cell phone. You're just like, holy shit, somebody's calling this an apartment and I guarantee you it's the killer. So like you're fixated on the event and not the actual item they're using to to pick it up. I mean, I I just feel like everything's, yeah, like you said, the movie didn't really have a lot of fat. It was, it kept you watching because every scene was kind of important. I mean, I guess you could have, you know, looked at your phone during the dinner scene at the beginning or when they're sitting on the bench waiting around or, you know, Somerset in the library, that could have been a big scene to kind of flip the phone open because he's just right. walking around, but you still didn't do it because it's that movie does it. It, yeah. it. it invests you and you've got the music playing in the background and you're just focused on, well, what's he doing? Getting He's getting books. I mean, how amazing is that? Right. It's not, but you're still invested. So it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. Really good stuff. Yeah. I'm, uh, definitely glad and like I, blake said go check it out go watch it it's it's probably streaming somewhere i mean we have everything at the at our fingertips these days if There's not no... it's like five or six bucks online guys it's always on amazon on sale or trust me go to i mean we just we just said it out loud the library probably has this they probably <laughs> you know, do they probably have the original one too where yeah. you flip the disco yeah <laughs> No, the library has Canopy too, which is now, you know, a streaming service that's free with your library card. It might be on there. They have a lot of fantastic stuff, but besides the point, everybody can find a movie now. So yeah, find seven, watch it, enjoy it. Um, that was awesome. Thank you for showing me seven, Blake. Yes, I enjoyed and it. And watching it at your home theater on the, you know, the closest to I'm going to get to seeing it in the theater without assholes sitting on their phones, interrupting and talking and you know, I play Pokemon quite quietly when I'm watching a movie tonight, so oh. I did all right. I didn't even notice because exactly. I was so engaged in the movie. I've seen so. this movie like 30 times. I was like, I'm going to catch some Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Dad enjoys. <laughs> well, again, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back sometime soon. But um, yeah, you still need to watch The Departed, I think, don't you? Oh yeah, I mean, there's a million. I have a whole yep. list of movies I need to watch. I've not. I mean, I mentioned almost every episode. We we mentioned um, Lord of the Rings. Never seen any of those. Well, that's where you do it at at the yeah. at the, at the, yeah, the projector. Yeah, that's 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 what it's there for. And I've got it on four K, so and probably the fucking extended extended versions too. It takes us twelve hours to watch the uh, Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return, and then you've got the other three, the Hobbits. But I would just avoid those. So, 
All right. Well, you know, next time I have 12 hours to spare, we'll have to you sure. know, get to him or whatever. But <laughs> again, thanks for coming on, Blake. Um, and we'll, we'll see you next time. Yep. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast.